morning, church. Would you remain standing with me as we read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of, of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, whom through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Church, as we enter together into our 16th month of walking verse by verse through the gospel of Mark, if someone were to ask you, or maybe once we finish this book altogether, but if it, at some point someone were to find out you were a member of this church and they were to ask you, okay, you guys have spent a lot of time in this one single part of the Bible. Can you sum it up for me using just one verse? I would have to imagine that you would at least be tempted to point them to Jesus' straightforward teaching back in Mark 1.15, where he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's a good one. I probably refer to that one singular verse more than any other passage in scripture. Or maybe you might point them to Peter's confession, where he says that Jesus, surely you are the Christ, the son of the most high God. Maybe on the heels of Easter, with the hope building in your heart as a result of the resurrection, maybe you would quote for them the words of the holy angels as they stood there on that day and they said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here, for he is risen. There's nothing wrong with any of those. But if our goal is to truly try and sum up the whole of the gospel narrative using just one sentence, I'd have to imagine that this morning's text takes the cake. Specifically, Mark 10, verse 45. I would have to imagine that you would point these people back to this very picture, that this is the sum of the gospel narrative that we have spent so much time in. For the Son of Man, he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There have been many men that say that the first half of this verse, it points back to everything that came before it. Mark chapters 1 through 10, all summed up in that one singular sentence, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And that now as Jesus and his disciples, they were just about to head in Jerusalem, that they were going to realize the fullness of the second half of that verse as Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, would lay down his life as a ransom for many. I invite you to stand to your feet, please. We return to this beautiful text. Context is key, and so we're going to go ahead and read this entire section here, beginning in verse 35 of Mark chapter 10. This is the word of God. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up with him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left, it is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. 
And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus said to them, called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my precious Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. So as you will likely recall, Jesus and his disciples, they have headed south, following along the Jordan River there on that western side, excuse me, on that on the eastern side, before heading west and crossing back over. They're going to cross back over somewhere around Jericho before heading up into Jerusalem. And now it's springtime. It's the time of the Passover. And so there would have been pilgrims from all around, maybe a couple of million pilgrims from all around descending upon the city of David. You'll recall that God's word tells us, specifically Deuteronomy 16 tells us, that there are three times each year when all the males of Israel were required to present themselves before God. The first of these occurrences was at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just immediately after the Passover. That's on the 15th through the 21st day of the month of Nisan. That's late March, early April. This Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, they were so closely tied together that you'll often hear them just referred to as one singular event in Scripture called the Passover. But we have here thousands of people traveling along with Jesus Christ heading into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. To commemorate God's saving work as he called his people out of slavery in in Egypt. He called them out and worked in miraculous ways to set them free that they may head out into the wilderness and there worship him. And so as they looked backwards some 1,400 years to looking at God's saving work, the ultimate show of redemption through this point in history. And then in the week that came after that is they would eat nothing that had yeast in it. A reminder that the people that were called out of Egypt, they had to move with such great haste, they didn't even have time for their bread to rise. Also a reminder of sin and its permeating um, character, the way that it can just find every nook and every cranny in our life, and we've got to search it out and hate it and cleanse ourselves of it. This was the setting around which Jesus is heading into Jerusalem. And all the people that were heading into Jerusalem that day, they had heard about Jesus Christ. They had heard that he had come with great power and authority. They knew about his mighty works. They knew that he had raised a man named Lazarus from the dead, not all that much before this time. And yet they all had their own concepts of who the Messiah must be. They all had their own concepts of what the Messiah had come to do. So while they may have had some idea in their heart that they were traveling side by side with the Christ, with the anointed one, with God's promised Messiah, they had no real understanding that the one that walked with them was the true Passover Lamb of God. No real idea that the one that walked with them, that he would be the one that would deal with their sin once and for all. No more sweeping the house. No more chasing down specks of yeast. That it would be him that would deal with their ultimate problem. Nothing left for them to do. But Jesus knew. This was the very reason why he had come. Not just to Jerusalem, but to the world. He marched on with absolute determination. His eyes fixed on everything that lay ahead. Focusing on the cross and on preparing those that were with him. Not the entire crowd, but the small faithful remnant. Those who by the working of God would come to Jesus as he called them to himself. Those who by the working of God would endure to the end. It would be to them that this gospel message would be entrusted. The message of the kingdom of God, it would be given into the hands of these selfish, these self-focused, self-centered, thick-skulled men. 
The message of the kingdom of God would be entrusted to them, and it would be up to them. There was no plan B. There was no alternate. It would be up to them to take this message to all of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And these dudes had a long, long way to go. We talked last week about how Jesus had come to his third and most comprehensive prediction regarding his death. And as was the absolute pattern, these guys already missed the point. They completely misunderstood what it was that Jesus was talking about. So much so that immediately following his telling of this, we find that James and John, two of his inner circle, two of those three that had been allowed to see miraculous things that the others even were withheld from, they come running ahead to make a request of Jesus. As a matter of fact, we're told that they want Jesus to commit to saying yes before they even hear what the request is. So they come running up and they say to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus, of course, knows the hearts of all men and he knew what these men were going to ask, but he's going to force them to vocalize it. So he looks at them and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, verse 37, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. These men, they clearly knew that this was the promised eternal king. These men had been with him there on that high mountain as he pulled back the veil to his flesh and he revealed the glory that had always been his. These men had some concept, better than most of us, better than any of us in this room, having seen with their own eyes, they had some concept that Jesus, despite the one that stood before them, had absolute humanity, the fullness of humanity, coming in the form of a servant. They recognized that this truly was the Christ, the son of the most high God, the eternal king promised through David, the one who was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, said that he would have an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. This is the anticipation that's building in these men's hearts as they march on towards Jerusalem knowing that this truly is that one, the son of man, the Christ, the son of the most high God. They knew who Jesus was. They had at least some concept of why he had come, but they had no idea how it was going to come to pass. Despite all of his teaching. Despite all of his calling aside, consistent touching and bringing them, they still could not grasp the reality. And we can't blame them. I was sitting at lunch with a brother last Sunday, and we were talking about the reality that we must remember that these men, they had to sift through literally hundreds of years of traditions and ordinances and man-made laws to try and somehow rightly see this Christ. It was next to impossible. It was impossible, apart from the working of God, for them to understand who this Jesus was and why he had come. And so there was great confusion. There's great confusion about why the Messiah had come. In their mind, their greatest enemies were external. You must remember this. The Jewish people weren't all that different from you. You see, we think that all our problems are the scumbags out there somewhere. All our problems are what the world has done to us. If we could just get all of our externals in order, then surely our life would be right. They believed their problem was the Romans that were occupying their land. And so they believed that surely they were coming to see an earthly coronation. That Jesus Christ would come, he would sit upon his earthly throne, and then he would rid Jerusalem. He would rid all of Israel of these filthy Romans. And that then, the descendants of Abraham by the flesh, that they could enjoy a period of unending, eternal peace in this land that God had promised them. This was their anticipation as they marched on. And because they believed that they were just days away from this great event, these guys, James and John, they wanted to make sure that they secured their, their spots of position, of authority, of power to the right and the left hand of Jesus. But he gently corrects them. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In short, what Jesus tells them is the path to glory is always a path of great suffering. Not just for Jesus, but for any who would call themselves his, for any who would presume to walk after him. There would be a period of everlasting peace. There will be a day when there will be peace. 
but this wasn't that day. Not now, not in this age. Jesus Christ came to be rejected, to be spit upon, to be mocked, to be beaten, and to be killed. They had no concept of what awaited him in Jerusalem, despite all his consistent teaching. That it was a baptism which awaited him as he would be plunged beneath the pain, the suffering, the torment of true death. As he would drink down the cup of his father's wrath until there was not one single drop left. And this was a thing that only Jesus was qualified for. That only he could accomplish. But that both James and John, they too would have a cup to drink and a baptism to undergo. That their suffering, that their sacrifice, it would not be redemptive. There is no way for man to earn anything within the kingdom of God. And these places of honor at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus, these are not things that could just be given out on a whim. These are not things that can be earned by men. That these would be preordained, been set up and prepared for those whom God had chosen. And yet what awaited these men was indeed suffering, real suffering. And yet that suffering earns us nothing in the kingdom of God. And yet you must cling tight to this truth. There is no path. Children, you can check out on me from any point after this, but I need you to hear the words I say to you now. You can go right back to sleep after I say these words, but you must understand that there is no life. There is no path which leads to the glory that is in Jesus Christ that does not bring with it suffering and pain and loss. If you miss this, if you miss this, you will always be in danger of pulling back. Every time Jesus Christ calls you to walk through something tough, knowing that he will walk with you, every single time you find yourself staring down the barrel of true suffering and true pain and true loss, every time you find yourself in the middle of something hard, you'll be susceptible to the lies of the enemy that tells you this cannot be God's will. Doesn't he love you? God cannot want this pain for your life. Doesn't he love you? And you will pull back. You will never press in. You will never come to the end of yourself. You will never see the impossibility of everything, every single thing that Jesus Christ has called you to and throw yourself at his feet. You must grasp that this life is one of pain. The question is, will you suffer with Jesus Christ? Trusting the glory that comes on the other side. Knowing that Satan cannot destroy your soul. He cannot snatch your soul from the grips of God who holds you. But he can distract you. He can discourage you. He can convince you that your God wants you to be nothing but fat and happy and comfortable so that you will so cling to the soft American dream that you will stay as far away as possible from the refining fire of your father. That every single time he calls you to something hard, something difficult, something impossible, something painful, you will cry out to the heavens, God, this can't be from you. There is no path to glory that does not lead through suffering and pain. Real suffering, real pain. I watch as so many men, they stand in pulpits like this and they preach about things like that, but they always preach it as if it's okay for a moment. For a moment. As if Jesus Christ, his, his suffering there on the cross was just for a moment and then your suffering will just be for a season. This is just a season of pain, brother. This is just a season of torment. This is just a season of loss. This is just a season of suffering. Dear friends, I've looked in the eyes of brothers and sisters, and I had to tell them with all sincerity, this season will never end in this life. You'll remain in that chair for the rest of your life. Your child will be sick for the rest of their life. That one that you have lost, they are not coming back in this lifetime. We lie to men. We lie to women. We lie to children when we tell them it's going to get better in this world. It might not. It might not. 
You may suffer exactly as you suffer today for every last minute. Your suffering may increase every last minute from this point until the day that God calls you home, but it is worth it. That's the story of Jesus Christ. That's what he's trying to tell these men. It is through great tribulation that you must enter the kingdom of God. You've got to understand, the tribulation isn't your ticket, but it's the only path. There's no end around. There's no other way. It will be hard. I need you to see the joy in this, church. Because there are so many of us that we come to the pain, we come to the suffering, we think God must have forsaken us. We come to the pain and we come to the suffering, we think we must be at odds with God. This must be a punishment. Dear friends, sometimes it's his loving discipline. He is marching you towards glory. That when that day comes and you see his son as he is, you too shall be glorious. This is the picture that he's painting for these men. As he corrects the brother's thinking and then the other ten, they catch wind of what it is that's happening. And of course they're upset. They're not upset because Jesus has been offended. They're upset because these dudes got the jump on them. They asked before they had an opportunity to. So Jesus continues on and he tells them, you've got this whole thing wrong. As a matter of fact, you've got it completely upside down. The world, they use their power, they use their authority to lord it over people. They use their every last resources to build a name and a reputation and, and, a, and a kingdom for themselves because the world, they believe that this is all that there is. This world, they have nowhere to worship but at the altar to the God of self because they believe that they and this world are all that exist. But it shall not be so among you. We're not entrapped by this. We know that this world is not all that there is. We know that we are not the center of the universe. He says you must let go, let go of all of this. That the kingdom of God, that being great, being used in great ways in the kingdom of God, that being first in the kingdom of God, it's not about scratching and clawing and fighting to make sure men know how awesome you are, to build a name for yourself, to surround yourself with comforts to make sure that you don't ever suffer. No, that's not the picture at all. It's that you lay all of that down. But you say, I so cherish Jesus Christ who has called me through this suffering. I so cherish the king who is coming back. I so cherish the kingdom to come that I gladly let loose of all this. And then what can men do to you? What can men do to you? Your parents have often said, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. What if they come with sticks and stones? So what? Take it all. Take every bit of what I have. Because my inheritance is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, and it shall never be lost. All of this is but a vapor and it will pass away in the end. And you declare that to the heavens whenever you suffer this loss proudly, confidently, with great joy in your heart, knowing that Jesus Christ is yours. This is the path to true greatness. This path where we come to Jesus Christ open-handed, knowing that we bring nothing to this kingdom, knowing that we offer nothing, we contribute nothing to our salvation except for the sin that makes it necessary, and we fall on our faces before him. With this same type of humility, we're to relate to all of our brothers. With the same sense of self-emptying, self-denying, self-forgetfulness, we're to relate to all of our brothers. The second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. We're to love our neighbors, to put ourselves second. That's the picture, and I pled with you last week. I pled with you last week. you feel like this is a recap? It is. But I pled with you last week as you left this place to examine your heart, to examine your life, to find those areas where you're continuing to cling to this, where you're continuing to avoid suffering at all costs. Find those areas of your life where you're trying to make this place into heaven by avoiding suffering at all costs. Find those places where you're trying to build an altar to self to make sure that you've built a reputation and a name and an authority and a power for yourself and to lay all of that down, knowing that entrance into the kingdom of God, that continuing in the kingdom of God, that the glory that comes in the kingdom of God, it will cost you more than you could ever possibly imagine. You can go back to sleep now. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, this is Jesus' favorite term of self-identification. The Son of Man. Drawing their eyes back again to the prophet Daniel. Knowing that the Son of God came to be born. The Son of Man. He came to fulfill all that God had promised of this Messiah, the Christ, this eternal King. That in him, he would be the one that came and representing man in his fullness. This is part of why Jesus must come and become fully man. That he would come, be born of a woman, being fully man, that he would then represent God in his dominion, in his authority, in his power over all the rest of creation. Knowing that he was the one that in the end, as promised through the prophet Daniel, go back and read Daniel 7, you'll remember that he will have a dominion which shall never fade away, an authority, a power, all the world coming to serve and to worship and to honor him. Infinitely worthy. That the infinite Son of God came to be born the Son of Man, and that in that reconciling humanity to divinity for all time, that this was the one that walked along this way with him, and yet in this moment, he looked like an ordinary man. He looked like a suffering servant. He looked just like all the rest. This is why so many were confused. They didn't fully recognize the reality that in coming to earth, that in submitting himself to the will of the Father, that he was actually emptying himself. We read about this in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, verse 6 who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the condescension of Jesus Christ, leaving heaven and coming to earth. And we talked last week about the reality that if he had been born to the richest family in the most cushy house with all the honor and gifts and praise that this world could bestow upon him, yet still see how far low he has stooped how much lower than the glories of heaven in coming to be man and that in here in coming here he emptied himself not emptying himself of his divinity god can't cease to be god god doesn't lose any of his godness god doesn't shave off the corners that jesus christ in emptying himself of his divinity he refused to grasp all that was his he refused to walk and to manifest and to show the world the glory that had always been his he refused to exercise his own authority he refused to work refused to work in his own power He allowed himself to be seen and spit upon and rejected and despised like an ordinary man, knowing that all of this would lead to unimaginable glory. Listen to how that verse continues. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He knew this glory waited on the backside of this. This is why he willingly marched on. This is why he had his eyes fixed on the cross. For the love of us, yes. For the glory of the Father, yes. But knowing that glory awaited him on the other side. Knowing that this was the reward as he marched on. Suffering as God had sent him to suffer. Suffering and never once an ounce of disobedience. Never once a a wayward thought. At all times, honoring and obeying and submitting to the will of the Father, suffering to the point of death, even death on a cross, and for this glory. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve this powerful one, this almighty one, this one who breathes stars, this one through whom and for whom all things were created, this one by whom all things are continued to be held together, this one he came to serve, the one who innumerable angels will be around the throne serving him night and day, day and night, singing his praises. This one came to serve. In our family study guide this week, one of the questions that I asked you was, in what ways in the Gospels do you see Jesus Christ suffer, uh, serving man? And probably the first that would come to mind for most of you, I would imagine, would be the washing of the disciples' feet. 
You'll remember that upon arrival into Jerusalem, uh, at the time of the Passover, Jesus sent some of the apostles ahead, and they said, look, you need to secure for us a place where we're going to take this, take this feast. They found the place, and then upon arrival in that room, the men would have needed to have their feet washed. The roads were dusty. The men wore sandals. It wouldn't have been unlikely for them to have just feet just completely black with the dirt from the result of all of their travels. And typically, there would have been a servant there, someone whose station in life made them, seat, uh, made them fit, made it suitable for them to carry out a menial task like this. And I can just imagine the stalemate that would have come. I can just imagine in light of all the disciples arguing, in spite of all their bickering about which of them was greatest in the kingdom of God, in, in, in light of, in light of, not in spite of, in light of their, their bickering about which of them is greatest in the kingdom of God, in, in light of their, their deep desire to be first, to be best, to be greatest, to be at the right hand, be at the left hand of Jesus Christ, I can just imagine a stalemate as they looked around at each other knowing, it ain't going to be me. Somebody needs to wash our feet, but it ain't going to be me. Because nobody steps up to a task like this. Number one, because feet are gross and nobody wants to touch them. But number two, we're the, we're the 12. We're the apostles. Surely there's something more important that Jesus would have us attending to. Shouldn't we be out healing people? Shouldn't we be calling down thunder from heaven? Shouldn't we be preaching messages? Shouldn't we be leading prayer groups? Shouldn't we be doing something other than washing people's feet? And then in addition to this, what happens if other people see us? They'll know that I'm the lowest. They'll know that I'm the worst. Who wants to follow after the dude when all they think of when they hear his name is him kneeling on the ground, cleaning dirty dude's feet? Feet, feet. So I can just imagine the whispering going on as they're waiting for Jesus to show up. And they're like, I ain't doing it, man. Make Thomas do it or make Thaddeus, if that's even his real name, make Thaddeus go do this thing. And before the argument can even break out, we see Jesus take off his outer garments, takes a towel, ties it around his waist, fills a basin with water, and he begins to wash their feet. And we know about Peter's objection, of course, because he's ashamed now. We know about Peter's objection, and it's not surprising to us at all, but Jesus tells them so that they may understand, Luke twenty two twenty seven, for who is the greater, the one who reclines at table and who is, or who is serves? Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is showing them I am greater. I am the greatest, and yet I am the one that serves because I need nothing from you. Dear friends, we can get this verse twisted. I don't want to take this further than it goes. This is not the point to my message this morning, but we can get this thing twisted, that Jesus Christ came to serve us in this lifetime, but now in heaven we have somehow serve him. Dear friends, you must understand that God needs nothing from you. We serve God in the sense that we obey and honor him. We serve God in the sense that he calls the shots. We are not God's master. We do not get to set the direction. We do not get to demand things of him. But dear friends, you must never for one second think that Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God, needs anything that you have to offer. That there's anything that he has called you to in this lifetime that he's sitting around waiting on you to serve him so that it can be accomplished. Dear friends, it is Jesus Christ who serves. At every single point in your salvation, at every single point in your walk, at every single thing at this point between your call and your glorification, it is Jesus Christ who works, who serves, who acts. And yet he is the king of the universe. He says, I have come to serve, not to be served. I told you last week how I prayed. As I think back to these foot washing, washing ceremonies, I told you how during Holy Week I'll pray because it's a, it's a fairly common thing for pastors to hold foot washing ceremonies and they will wash their people's feet. And I told you how during those I just pray that, dear God, let this man truly serve these people all year long. Let this not just be a singular show. 
Let this be the direction of this man's heart as he lays down his life, as he forgets himself, as he truly serves and sacrifices and loves for the sake of these people. Because, dear friends, feet get dirty all over again. Question is, have you forgotten yourself so much? Are you so madly in love with Jesus Christ, your king, and are your eyes so firmly fixed on heaven to come that you will gladly do whatever he places before you and you will count it great joy? That's what we see in Jesus Christ here. This wasn't about the dirt. This wasn't about some show. This wasn't about some sign. This was but a, just a picture, a foreshadowing, just a hint of all that was to come as he would ultimately serve in laying down his life as a ransom for many. Most incredible sacrifice this world has ever, ever seen. It's one thing for Jesus to leave heaven and come to earth. It's another thing for him to serve the men once he's here, but to lay down his life, the life of the son of the most high God, the most precious thing in the entire universe, for him to gladly lay it down, the life of God's only begotten son, to give it away, unimaginable. You want to sum up the gospel? It is this, that Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God, he gave his life as a ransom for many. Sit and meditate on that. Sit in awe of the truth of this. Now, this is new news to the men that are walking with Jesus. You'll remember that we have studied in great detail the three predictions that he has made with regards to his death and resurrection. I'll read them very quickly to you now. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. and must be killed and after three days rise again. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Three very clear statements about Jesus' impending death and resurrection. He was making so clear to these men that I am not caught off guard by this thing, that all that is happening in the drama to come, it is God who has been directing it all, moving all of the universe. Dear friends, I've talked to you before about the amazement I have just with this truth. As a man that is called to write for a living, it is so hard to get thoughts even out of my head and onto paper and then to express them to you. But the God of the universe, he uses the entire universe, the stars in the sky, the, the mountains, the elephants, the people, everything, the holy angels, every single part of his creation, he is molding, he is shaping, he is moving towards his appointed purpose. That there on Golgotha, Jesus Christ would lay his life down, that he could take it up again. But up until this point, we haven't been told why. Now, we know why. On this side of the cross, with the revelation of God, we know why Jesus came to, to die. We know that this wasn't just some, some vain tragedy. That we, we know that he didn't, he didn't die for no purpose at all. We know the reason behind his coming, the reason behind his dying. We praise him for this reason. It's impossible for a Christian to see the cross. It's impossible for a true Christian to hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and not immediately think about the why behind all of this. But for those that walked with Jesus on that day, they had no clue. They had no idea. They just knew that he was in charge and he was coming to die and to be raised again. And this is the first time they had heard it, or at least the first time we're told that Jesus tells them it. So I need you to put yourself back in the place of Peter and James and John on that day, all the others, and ask yourself, why must Jesus die? Now, the easy answer, the immediate answer, the answer we talked about back when we were in chapter 8 of Mark was that because it had been written, because the scriptures have said that the Christ, the Messiah, the suffering servant, that he would come to die. Just think to Isaiah 53. We focus often on Isaiah 53, verse 10, where it says that it pleased the Lord to crush him. So in a very real sense, we could say that Jesus Christ must die because the Bible says so. In addition to that, we may just say that because of all the universe exists for the glory of God, 
Because everything God does is for his glory. So we can also say in a very real sense that Jesus Christ must die because it's to the ultimate glory of God. And dear friends, you must understand that God owes you no further explanation. It is perfectly right and acceptable for the God of the universe to look at you and say, because I wrote it in my word and it brings me glory, that's why. Keith, when Amanda and I were dating, the only time I would ever get mad at you was when you would look at her and you would say, little girl, because I'm the daddy. Remember that? That's an acceptable thing for a daddy to say, by the way. I didn't like it when I was a little punk boy trying to date the girl. It's an acceptable thing for the God of the universe to look at you and say, because I am God. And who are you, old man, to answer back to me? But praise God, he doesn't leave us there. That the son of the most high God, he tells him, this is why. That Jesus Christ, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom. It's not a word we use very often, is it? It's a word we're familiar with. It's not a word that we use. We're for, we understand the concept with regards to movies and movies or books that you've read. The idea that a, that a ransom is a payment demanded and given for the release of a slave or a prisoner of some sort. But practically, it's not a thing that we deal with every day. Very few of you have ever been ransomed. Very few have been taken kidnapped. I remember when I was a kid, I thought it was cute that you'd have one of your friends call your mom and try to figure out what you were worth. And so they'd call your mom and go, I got your little boy. And try to figure out how much she's willing to pay. And you figure out it ain't much. This can of beans is about it. We're not familiar at any practical level. And yet, for these people that walk with Jesus Christ, they were very familiar with the concept of a ransom because God had spoken in his law. In the Old Testament law, he had made provision for the ransoming of men. In Leviticus 25, Jesus talks about, or excuse me, God talks about a, a situation where a poor man sells himself into slavery to his rich neighbor. Now, this is not the kind of atrocity that we think about in this age when we think about slavery. This is not the kidnapping and sale of a man. God very clearly has talked about just what an abomination this is. God has always opposed such a thing as this. Exodus 21 says that a man is to be executed if he steals and sells another man. This is a very different situation from this. This is a man who willingly enters into this agreement. A man who needs money for himself and for his family. He has no other means to come up with this other than himself and his own labor. And so he sells himself to his neighbor. And then, if one would come along with the resources, if one would come up with the money, with the right price, he can then go and pay a ransom. He can give that money to the one that owns the man now. To the one in whom he is enslaved. He can give a ransom to that man that he may be redeemed. That's a more common word in the New Testament, isn't it? redeemed we know that word the idea of redemption the idea of being redeemed it's it's to regain the, the the possession of that which was yours to restore something to its rightful place and so we may say that a ransom is that which is given for the purpose of redemption a ransom is that which is paid so that something or someone may be redeemed that's the picture here either way this man has found himself in slavery because of his poverty because of his inability to come up with what needs to be paid in order to gain, grant his freedom if someone other than him comes and pays this price, pays this ransom, he will be restored to his rightful place. He will be redeemed. The price has been paid and he is free to go. The same idea is talked about in Exodus 21. We're, talked about, we're told there about the concept if, a, if an ox were to gore a man or a woman or a child to death, that that ox is to be put to, put to death. But if the owner of that ox has already been warned, if the owner of that ox has already been warned that this ox is violent, that this ox has attacked other people, if the owner should have taken steps to protect that family from his ox, then that man is to lose his life. That man is to be put to death unless a ransom is to be laid. This is what it says. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. You see this. The ransom imposed for the redemption of a life. 
Not just for animals, not just for slaves, not just for men that own oxes, but for all of the firstborn of Israel. You remember when God called his people out of Egypt at the Passover? He looked out over all of Egypt and he found there nothing but rebels. He found there nothing but sinners. He found there nothing but men that hated his name and hated his glory. And yet of all the wicked sinners in all the earth, he said, I choose these people called by my name. I choose these people called Israel that I will save them from the wrath to come. That then as he sent his angel through the city on that night, taking the lives of the firstborn of all of Egypt, it was those who had been covered by the blood of the lamb on their doors, trusting in the promise that God had made to them. Not because they were the greatest, not because they were the most obedient, but because God had chosen them, that God would spare them on that night. He would save them. Not merely save them from his wrath, but set them free that they could go out and rightly worship him. This was the picture of redemption, that God would accept an innocent substitute, the blood of a, spot, a spotless lamb, that he would accept that in payment for them. And that because of this, they belong to him. We read about this in Exodus 13. You must consecrate to me all firstborn. Whoever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, he is mine. We learn the exact price in Numbers 18, 15. And the redemption price shall be affixed at five shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. So the people of Israel, they belong to God. They had been ransomed by God. They had been purchased at a price. They had been spared his wrath and set free. So this idea of redemption, this idea of ransom, it wasn't just some foreign concept. It wasn't just some amalgamous thing. It wasn't just, just some abstract. This was very practical for them, practical for their life. They understood the idea that if a man were to find himself enslaved, imprisoned, entrapped, unable to set himself free, he basically had three options. Remain in prison, die, or have someone pay the ransom. That those were the three options that stood before them. And in this case, here comes Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God. He says, in this situation, I'm calling you to tell you that the ransom price is me. The ransom price is my life found in my blood. We read about this in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. You are ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the blood. A man's life is in his blood. The most valuable blood, the most valuable life in the history of the world, that he would come to lay it down as a ransom for many. I don't seem impressed. In a world of business or finance, you'll routinely hear people say that something is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. I can put a price tag of $50,000 on my truck, but if somebody isn't willing to pay it, it just ain't real. You need to recognize how precious Jesus Christ is to his father. You need to recognize the value of his blood, and you need to recognize, Christian, if you are the chosen, if you are the many, if you are the elect, if you are those that have been called, that have been justified, that have been cleansed by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, that you should stand in all this day knowing that you are not your own. You are bought at a price, and that price is the most glorious thing in the heavens or on earth or anywhere in between. It is the precious blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. You have been bought at a price, and the price you cannot possibly imagine. We're not talking about millions. We're not talking about trillions. We are talking about the blood of God's own son. His life laid down for the sake of those that would be his. Please hear me. It's not because you're the greatest. It's not because you're the best. It's not because you're the brightest. It's not because you're the most faithful. It's not that God looked down the corridor of time and he said, okay, who's going to grow up to be really swell? I think I'm going to go by them. Their stock's on the rise. No, Jesus Christ, he looked out over all eternity and said, they're all scumbags. There's not a one of them I would choose. 
Every single one of them, they hate me. They hate my glory. They hate my name. They rebel. They blaspheme. They spit. They reject. Someday, every single one of them would take my life. Were they standing there on that hill on that day? And yet, I choose you. I choose you. And I will, I will assess a price to you based on what I pay for you. Not because my father somehow delights more in you than all the rest. Because I'm going to lay down my life. And the things that I lay down my life for, they are precious. They're worth more than anything you could ever imagine. That this is the working of God in this. He determined he was going to pay this price. Listen to the doxology that Paul breaks into. As he's, just, he's just meditating over this in his introduction to the, his letter to the Ephesian church. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in his beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. Dear friends, this is the reason why Jesus Christ came. This is the reason why before the beginning of time he determined that he would come to redeem a people to himself. His father was handing a, a bride to him, a precious bride, a beautiful bride, a sanctified bride, a white and cleansed bride, and the price for that would be his own life, his own blood. He would lay down the price. He would pay the cost. This was the reason why he marched ahead on that day. You need to understand that he was going to Golgotha. He was going to the cross to glorify his father. But he was doing it to purchase you. And we throw ourselves around like we're nothing. We throw around our salvation like it's nothing. Because so many preacher men have stood up in a pulpit and they've told you it's about nothing more than walking down an aisle and saying a prayer. And so why would you hold this cherished? Why would you find any security in that? Why would you delight in it? Do you know why we won't fully sponsor kids that want to play upward basketball? We make you pay something. Because if you don't recognize the cost that's associated with this, it's not going to be important to you. It's not going to be anything there. If you believe your salvation is nothing more than raising your hand and saying a prayer, it costs you nothing. You don't realize all that it costs the God of the universe to save you? Friends, of course you're going to hold it lightly and you're going to count it as nothing. Of course you're going to wander away. Of course you're going to be unbothered by an unchanged life, but you recognize the cost. And now a week away from the cross, Jesus Christ is talking about this, but we must ask, okay, we get it. Jesus Christ came and his life, his blood, it was the ransom for many. But a ransom is a thing paid to set someone free. What did he come to set us free from? And then once we find the Bible's answer to that, we can then rightly answer the second question, which is, to whom is the ransom owed? A ransom is paid to set a man free, and a ransom is paid to someone. Well, what? What is this transaction that much must happen? So firstly, are we enslaved, and if so, to what? Well, Scripture tells us in John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Aha. Those who sin are enslaved to sin. And we know this practically. It's not that men want to break free from sin. It's that we delight, we cherish in our sin. God has allowed us. We talk about free will sometimes. Spoiler alert, free will is not at all what you believe it is. But the reality is that the God of the universe has allowed you to chase after the desires of your heart. And the desires of your heart will always, apart from his working, always be sin. God looked out before the flood over all of humanity. And what did he find? There was only wickedness in their heart. 
Men love sin. We cherish sin, and thereby we're enslaved to sin. Beyond this, God had warned Adam that if you sin, you shall die. The wages, the consequences, the, 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 the cost to sin is your life. You shall die. So then can we say that as a result of being enslaved to sin, we're enslaved to death? Peter seems to say, or Paul seems to say so. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Our slavery to sin makes us slaves to death. Not only slaves to death, but slaves to the fear of death. That constant thought of death, that constant thought of what must await us on the other side of death when we stand before the rightful judge of the universe. So we read this in Hebrews 2.15. We read that Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So men are enslaved. We're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to death. We're enslaved to fear of death, and we're enslaved to the God of this age. We're enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. That God, in his sovereignty, he has allowed this one to continue to tempt, to continue to distract, to continue to torment, to continue to lead you off into the sin and death and the slavery that awaits you there. Listen to what Paul says to the pastor, the young pastor Timothy, as he writes his second letter to him. And he's telling him that he must be meek and he must be gentle and he must be kind, but he must confront sin wherever he sees it. He must deal with heresy head on. And he says the reason why, 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will, enslaved, ensnared by the devil. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, right? That God has allowed, for a time he has allowed humanity to be ensnared, to be entrapped, to be entangled with the life of Satan, the evil one. God has said, reverting back to sin and our love of sin, he has said that you're of your, to the Pharisees, he said, you're of your father the devil and therefore your will is to do what he desires. We gladly follow after him. Again, no one can ever say Satan made me do it. No one can ever say the devil made me do it. He looks out on all of mankind. He says, go after your heart's delight. Whatever your heart cherishes, whatever you truly long for, whatever you see as most attractive in all the world, you go after that, and we do. And we do. Constantly delighting in sin. Constantly opening our, our hearts to the temptation, the distraction, the taunts, the destruction that comes from following after Satan. Knowing that man loves this slavery. Again, the picture isn't of a man trying to scratch and claw, looking to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I love you so much. Won't you just let me out of this prison? Jesus, I want to worship you. I want to obey you. I want to honor you. You're the greatest thing in all the universe. If I could just break free. And he says, well, nah, I don't think so. It's the most bizarre case of Stockholm Syndrome you've ever seen. The world loving their captors. The world loving their imprisonment. The world delighting. There are preachers who will stand in this place and will say, well, Jesus Christ died so that he could throw you a life raft. That if you would just be willing, you could reach out your hand and take hold of it. No difference. You need to understand, if that analogy plays out, it's God throwing the life raft and you spinning in his face. You seeing that life raft as a snake, as a trap. You calling those that take hold of it liars and fools. You need to understand that the world thinks they're free. They have no concept. They believe that they're free and they laugh at us. That we would follow after. We would submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ who we've never seen. You fools. And yet this is the story. That they're enslaved. They're ensnared. That this is what Jesus Christ has come to set us free from. Set us free from the kingdom of darkness. And so then we might wonder. If what he's come to set us free from is the works of the devil. 
the ensnarement to the devil, the sin that comes from that, the death that results from that, our hearts which love, all of that, would it not then make sense that Jesus Christ would come to give his life as a ransom and that that ransom would be due to the devil? There are many men who teach that. During the dark ages, many men who did teach that. As if the God of this age had pulled one over on the God of the universe. As if he had tracked all the men and he said, I ain't giving them back to you. Give me your son. And then he somehow skipped off in victory knowing that he had captured the son of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, you must understand, Satan is not the victor. Jesus Christ, our Lord, came to stomp his head. He will receive, he deserves, he will receive nothing but the torments of hell. We talked about on Thursday night, my family has a family Bible uh, study. We're just working through some systematic theology things. And one of the questions is just about hell. We consistently come back to hell. Imagine that with me as their dad. We talk about hell a lot. But we're talking about this, and I'm having to remind them that hell is not some uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon where Satan is running around with a pitchfork and glee, and he loves it. No, he is being tormented. The hottest fires of hell reserved for him. He will receive nothing but that which is appointed to him. And we must remember that the very reason there is this penalty of death, the very reason that the wages of sin is death, is because God has ordained it. We cry out with King David, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. And to you and to you alone do I owe payment. We have blasphemed. We have spit upon. We have attempted to rob the glory of the infinitely glorious God. It is to him and to him alone that payment is due. And it is from him and him alone that payment can come. That man, even if he desired to, could not restore the infinite glory that he has attempted to rob from God. The rebellion that he has committed against the infinitely glorious God. There is nothing that we have to offer. There is nothing that we could give to restore what has been broken. To give him back what we've attempted to steal. It's only God that can accomplish this thing. Jesus Christ must be fully God. Fulfilling all righteousness but having this infinitely worthy life in and of himself, willing to lay this thing down as a propitiation. There's a fancy word for you. That not only would he shed his blood to take away the sins of the world, but that he would shed his blood that man might be reconciled to God. That God in all his fury, in all his wrath, in all his anger against sinners, that in Christ Jesus he would now be disposed towards us. His attitude towards us would change because of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Only God can do such a thing. To only God is the payment due. From only God can the payment come. And we're running super short on time. So we've got to, we've got to zone, zone in here on that word for. The son of God came to give his life as a ransom for many. We cannot pay our own ransom. Again, Jesus Christ must pay it. The most valuable thing in all the universe, his blood, he must pay it. He pays it on behalf of someone else for the many, for the saints, for the elect, for the chosen, for those he has called. I'm going to read through. I don't care. We might go over. I'm going to read through John 10 because you've got to hear this. Otherwise, you think I'm just talking out of my butt. John 10, beginning in verse 14. I'm the good shepherd, and I know my own, and they, and, I'm sorry, I've got to slow down. This is the word of God. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. And then I skip all the way down. I skip all the way down to verse 25. So the men that are standing there, they look at him and they say, okay, well, just tell us straightforward. Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Why won't you tell us? And he says this, verse 25, I already told you, and you do not believe the works that I do, I do in my Father's name, and they bear witness about me. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, he is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father and one. You've got to see this, the perfect unity of the God of the universe, the triune God of the universe, sitting back before the beginning of time, looking at all the sinners of the world. He says, I choose them, not because they're the best, not because they're the brightest, not because they're the greatest. Jesus Christ submitting to the Father, saying, I go to buy them now. Not one single drop of my blood shall be wasted. I go to buy them now. I will not lose. I will buy them. I will guarantee that they are mine as I call them. They hear my voice. They know that I am their shepherd. And they will come to me guaranteed. It will happen. Knowing that the Holy Spirit is part of this triune God, that at the proper time he will call and he will call you to himself. He will come and he will draw you in. The God of the universe all working to secure, to guarantee, to assure your salvation. That is your assurance. That is your confidence. That is the picture at the cross of Jesus Christ. The God of the universe saying, I choose you and I shall not lose one. I choose you and you will see me in glory in the end. Dear friends, celebrate this. Celebrate this. Don't celebrate some hollow assurance that the world gives you. If you just try really hard. Don't celebrate some false assurance that you walk down an aisle and you said a prayer. Don't celebrate some false assurance that you're a pastor in a church. Look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, and say, I trust in him and his atoning death. I trust that when he said it is finished, it was really finished and there was nothing else to be paid. Dear friends, you find yourself sitting in this place today and you're saying, well, you're talking about the chosen. You're talking about the elect. You're talking about those that he has selected. How do I know if I'm one? Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You can't do it unless he enables it. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You can have absolute assurance that that was for you that he died. It is for you that he gave a ransom. As you turn and trust in him, because your heart loves sin. It is only if he reaches into your chest and he changes your heart, and you cry out to him and you say, surely you are the Christ, the son of the most high God, and I give my everything to you. It's when you come to the end of yourself and you say, I'm in prison and I don't even know that I want to break free. I throw myself at the feet of Christ Jesus. That's how you can be sure. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have assured us that the work you begin, you will not fail to complete. We thank you, Father God, that this thing doesn't rest on us. We thank you, Father God, that we can have the assurance of just how precious we truly are. Because of the price that has been paid as Jesus Christ came to give his life to purchase the church. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the glory of that offer, the glory of that promise. And if any have not yet, they would turn, they would trust, and they would be saved. For those of us that you have already called, those of us that have already been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you have made that clear by our calling, by our repentance, by our life, Father, would you continue to cause us to repent and believe? Father, above all, we want to see you glorified. Be glorified by the words that we sing now. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.